2: featuring tales to terrify, crime city central, protecting project pulp, and the all new far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the district of wonders. Come and find yours.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 384. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have the man himself, Mr. J.J. Campanella, with his science news. And the main fiction is Our Lands Abounds by David MacDonald. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope, yes, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. But don't forget, this show is, as always, sponsored by Octagon Technology. Cloud services, hosted exchange, and offsite backups are compliant with the UK Data Protection Act. 1995 to 2015, Octagon Technology helping businesses with their IT problems. There you go. Big, big thank you to Diane and Clive. So, before we get into the kind of, you know, the the nitty-gritty there, just to tell you what's been going on on the YouTube channel there, we have now the two parts of my in-depth look at Alfred Best, godfather of science fiction. I've also got coming up is the five one-hit wonders, what I think kind of five one-hit wonders, science fiction one-hit wonders. A bit like black lace music wise, stormed the charts and then kind of faded away and never to be repeated. I've also got an iRobot in look. I, I listened to kind of iRobot by Isaac Ashmoff. That's coming in soon. And I'm going to plan to do something today as well. So pop over to my YouTube starship server, HQ where you can see me in all my, all my glory. <laughs> Enough of that. Let's get JJ Campanella with his science news. Jim Squire.
1: Greetings and mentatious revelations, my hyperbolically itinerant listeners, and welcome to this April 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this all exceedingly protonacious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, I'm going to start this segment with a technological death knell. Some pieces of technology simply fade away slowly and others are rushed to their deaths on high-speed trams. Compact discs seem to be moving into the horizon at some speed in between. CDs have been around since the late 1980s. I actually remember the first time I bought a CD because, A, it was in an unusual place, an RCA Columbia warehouse in Jacksonville, Illinois, and B, because the CD that I got was such a fantastic bargain, even though I didn't actually have a CD player at the time. I had quite an eclectic vinyl record collection at the time, and remember thinking what a pain in the neck it was to move that collection around every time I moved from one place to another. I was at a temporary teaching post at a little college in the middle of Illinois, and soon would be heading off to a doctoral program hundreds of miles away. The thought of moving those records again was less than pleasant. I remember thinking at the time that if I bought this awesome new CD collection of the well-tempered clavier, Then I could lighten my load of vinyl records just a little bit, and little did I know that I would begin a future in which I would not only be carrying all my old records, I would now be transporting all my new CDs as well. Well, tonight I come to tell you that CDs are going the way of the Buggy Whip, cassette tapes, wired telephones, and Lindsay Lohan. Last weekend, I went searching at several electronic stores, which I will not advertise for here I was looking for a clock radio with a CD player for my soon-to-be six-year-old son. At the first store I stopped in, I found, yes, one clock radio with a CD player. It had minimal options, tinny sound, and was made by an off-brand company I had never heard of before. However, there were at least a dozen choice models of clock radio which had built-in ports for iPods. Okay, I thought... I'll try one of the bigger electronic warehouse places. Well, the bigger place had two choices. Another lousy quality off-brand clock radio with a CD player and a pink Hello Kitty clock radio. I knew my son was not going for the Hello Kitty clock radio, so I was stuck. I called my lovely wife for advice. She suggested since I was nearby that I should try the Goodwill store. She figured that lots of people would be donating old clock radios with CD players for tax write-offs, especially at this time of year. Um, She was wrong. Not only was there not a clock radio with a CD player, there were no clock radios at all at the secondhand store. I have concluded that the death of CDs will be here soon, that we will soon be expected to go entirely digital and download our music from iTunes and other sources. Frankly, I'm not sure whether this is a good thing, but things are changing whether we like it or not. The one thing technology is bound to do is change. New 2014 car models still have CD players, along with radios as a standard feature. The radios aren't going anywhere because radio programs and music are still out there and mostly free, but it may not be very long before you will no longer be able to get a CD player in your car just as you can no longer get a cassette player. For you youngsters out there, ask your parents what I'm talking about. My son picked up an old cassette tape I had in a box in the garage the other day and asked what the heck it was. When I explained to him what it was for, I felt older than I have in a while. Okay, let's get going on to actual science here before I start blubbering. Those were the days, my friend. Okay. The first science story of the night just kind of annoyed me, and you'll know why in a moment. You would think that after thousands of years of eating food, humans would have some clue as to what is good for you and what is not. But even after all this time, we are still arguing. I was annoyed by this story because I thought that nutritionists had finally come to a logical conclusion. But apparently nutrition and logic don't necessarily go together. In two independent studies people and mice eating diets low in protein were healthier and tended to live longer than those eating protein-rich diets. Both those studies can be found in the March edition of the journal Cell Metabolism and suggest that animal proteins, including those from meat and dairy, are less healthy than plant proteins. Okay, I thought we had concluded once and for all already that high-protein diets are A, not harmful, and B, good for you because they bring down weight and lower cholesterol. I thought we had finally concluded in the last decade that high-carb diets are bad because any extra sugar in your body gets turned into fat. Are we now back at square one? Carbs good, protein bad? Well, the answer seems to be yes and no. Let me explain. The first study comes out of the lab of Dr. Morgan Levine of USC. Levine found that out of more than 6,000 people 50 years of age and older, those 65 and younger who got less than 10% of their calories from protein had lower risks of dying from cancer and diabetes during 18 years of follow up than those who ate more protein. People who ate moderate amounts of protein, making up 10 to 19% of their diet, had, for instance, three times the chance of dying from cancer. As those on a low-protein diet, this is what boggles my mind. Wait, less than 20% is moderate? That doesn't seem like a lot of protein to me, and whose definition was that? Okay, what else? Well, here's the good news. After age 65, though, the pattern reversed with high-protein diets, 20% or more, carrying lower risks of dying of cancer. And although my wife laughingly reassured me I'm getting closer to that magic 65 mark, I still have a long, long way to go to get there, thanks. Morgan said, quote, A high-protein diet is one of the worst things you could do up to age 65. Eating lots of protein, especially protein from animal sources, can be nearly as harmful to health as smoking, unquote. Great to know I've been killing myself the last few years with lean chicken breasts. What about the other study? Well, the second study comes out of the lab of Dr. Samantha solon of the University of Sydney. She found that protein proved more important than calories for determining health and longevity. Researchers fed 858 mice, one of 25 diets that had varying ratios of proteins, carbohydrates, fats, and calories. Those that ate low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets fared the best, as the protein content climbed, though, the mice' risks of dying younger also seemed to increase. In contrast, however, dropping calories without lowering protein generally did not affect the rodent's lifespans. That result seems to contradict previous studies that have shown that cutting calories lengthens lifespan in organisms, including yeast, fruit flies, dogs, and mice. Solon-Biet says, quote, The study may shed light on how caloric restriction actually extends life. We think that calorie restriction works not by restricting the amount of energy, but by restricting protein, unquote. This, by the way, is an entirely new view on life extension. It had been thought up to this point that life extension by caloric restriction assumed you were just cutting down on everything. Apparently, it may not be that simple. Maybe it's the proteins that are the real problem and not the rest of our diet. In Solon study, Mice eating low-protein, carb-rich diets had lower activity in a gene called mTOR in their livers than mice on protein-rich diets did. And her previous studies have shown that reduced activity of mTOR usually predicts better health and longer lives in mice. She found that not only did high-protein diets cause an increase in mTOR activity, but mice also on low-protein, high-fat diets were less healthy and died younger. So let me get this straight. Too much protein, you die young. Too much fat, you die young. A carb rich diet with low protein, and you'll outlive Lazarus long. Why am I just a teeny bit worried here for those of us who still are well below retirement age and love our bacon? Is there any hope for protein lovers? Well, Solon Biet says, quote, if your body can sustain protein restrictions, adults should try it. However, if you still want higher levels of protein in your diet, there's no downside to replacing meat with plant proteins such as those found in beans and nuts. If we're wrong, there's no negative side effects. If we're right, it means a reduction in cancer and diabetes, unquote. Great. Whoopee. Soy burgers, here I come. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you vegetarians out there laughing your behinds off. Tee hee hee hee. I now have several physical science stories that have caught the attention of the international science community. The first of those stories is probably the most important. In fact, some science commentators are suggesting that this is probably the most important science story of the year so far. So important, it was even mentioned in a, in a TV comedy program last week, uh, the Big Bang Theory, oddly enough. What is the story? Well, there's now strong evidence that the universe is truly in an expanding state. This may not mean much to the common folk, but it does support the theory of a Big Bang followed by continuous growth of the universe outward, as opposed to a static, ungrowing universe. A group of astronomers led by Dr. John Kovac of Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics measured subtle variations in the polarization of the cosmic microwave background using the BICEP-2 telescope. The BICEP telescope is located in Antarctica and houses 512 detectors, each cooled to nearly one-quarter of a degree Celsius above absolute zero. I guess the keeping them on ice down there under helps to cool them all that cheaper. Anyway, the detectors alternate, half filtering out horizontally aligned light and half vertical light, By regularly scanning a region of the sky above the South Pole, the researchers were able to map a chunk of the cosmic microwave background with polarized light. I'll explain in a second why polarized light waves are so important here, at least as far as I understand. They released their results in papers posted online. And by the way, that makes me a little bit nervous because they have not submitted their results to an actual journal yet. Anyway... Better informed physicists than me seem very excited over this, so for once I will not judge the quality of the science. Astronomers have predicted that cosmic inflation, if it occurred, would have left marks on the cosmic microwave background radiation, the flash of light released into space about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe had cooled down enough for light to actually travel freely. They've suggested that one signature of that inflation would be found in how photons align and polarize. Gravitational ripples induced by inflation would have set up swirling patterns in that light polarization. Astrophysicists call this special swirling of photon energy B-mode polarization. And up until now, this has been exceedingly hard to detect. But detection of B-mode polarization of light waves in the cosmos would strengthen the case for universal inflation mainly because primordial gravitational waves are the only known source that physicists can think of well to sum it up Kovacs and his team have actually detected the so-called b-mode polarization of light indicating strong gravitational waves in fact the strength of the gravitational waves was much higher than Kovacs group had expected the surprisingly strong signal Rules out several possible other models for cosmic inflation. Kovacs says, quote, This opens up a whole new window, a whole new research area. The high energies seen in the inflationary epoch make it possible to test some ideas from string theory, which many assumed were not testable. This is a playground for everyone to start testing their theories. Unquote. Kovacs goes on to say that although he is hugely excited by his findings, As with all science, we need to be careful until all the data is in. Quote, It's not a fluke, that's for sure, but we don't know for certain if the signal is really from the early universe or if it's an artifact from the telescope, or even intervening galaxies. At least eight other telescopes are now looking for B-mode polarization. Their findings will help nail down the source of the signal and perhaps support our own findings, unquote. Staying in space... It was reported in the journal Science in the April 4th issue that the interior structure of Saturn's moon, Enceladus, may be one of the most interesting and promising places for life in the whole solar system. Dr. Luciano E.S. of the University of Rome and his team have for the first time measured the depth and extent of a subsurface sea on the ice-covered moon of Enceladus. The findings further support the notion that an underground reservoir feeds the moon's ice geysers and raises questions about Enceladus' habitability. For a long time, astronomers thought the 500-kilometer-wide Enceladus was a dead world. But the Cassini spacecraft in 2004 found an active moon, with geysers shooting particles of salty water through fissures that dot the southern hemisphere. The fissures expand and contract in rhythm with the tides of Saturn. It was thought that vast amounts of water lurked under that surface, but that water has been hypothetical up until now. To peek inside Enceladus, ES used Doppler shifts in the Cassini spacecraft's earthbound radio signal during three flybys of the Moon. The Doppler shifts, tiny changes in the frequency of the radio waves as it moved, tracked the spacecraft's speed. Whenever Cassini passed over a part of the Moon with slightly more mass, the increased gravity accelerated the probe. E.S. used the changes in Cassini's speed to map Enceladus's interior structure. Okay, I'm not a physical scientist, but that is very imaginative and very cool. E.S.'s team concluded that a 10-kilometer deep ocean must sit under 30 to 40 kilometers of ice and on top of the moon's rocky core. Extending from the South Pole to mid-southern latitudes, the sea has a volume of water similar to Lake Superior's. ES expected the result and says, quote, I would have been more surprised if we didn't find anything. Unquote. One thing that is not yet clear is how that sea feeds the ice geysers tens of kilometers above it to the surface. ES says, quote, It seems unlikely you'd have a lake directly connected to the surface. There must be an intermediate plumbing system to move all that water up and out. Unquote. As far as life is concerned on the moon, ES says, Some interesting chemistry may be going on where the sea's water meets rock. Any discussion of heat rising up from the moon's interior mixed with a salty ocean inevitably leads to musings on possible life, though no evidence suggests that aliens swim the seas of Enceladus. The presence of a warm, briny environment raises intriguing possibilities, This is all very neat stuff for anybody who's a lover of SF and wonders if there is life out there. Unfortunately, there is a sucky aspect to all of this as well. Whether there is life on Enceladus or not will remain a moot question for quite a while longer. First of all, we're obviously not going to Enceladus very soon. But the other thing is, is that the Cassini probe has only two more flybys of the moon planned. ES says, quote, We're essentially done with Enceladus for the moment. Unfortunately, it will be a long time before we return to a very interesting moon, unquote tantalized by the siren song, but still bound to our earthly mast. Well, still sticking to the astronomic theme of the evening, the next story is another update on the exoplanet search. Remember that exoplanets are any planet which are circling other stars out there in the universe, besides old Sol here. At this point, the number of exoplanets has been raised to about 1,700. Dr. Jack Lissauer of NASA and his research group just reported online at archive.org in a better way to ensure that what we are observing out there are really planets. Lissauer's group, using the Kepler Space Telescope, have confirmed the existence of 715 new planets orbiting 305 stars. Lissauer's confirmations more than double the number of planets established by the now-crippled Kepler since 2009. In the past, the Kepler telescope was used to search for planets by looking for tiny dips in starlight that occur when a planet periodically passes in front of, or transits, as astronomers call it, its star. However, transiting planets aren't the only reason stars appear to flicker. Most commonly, the light dips can be caused by a chance alignment with an eclipsing binary. That's a pair of stars that orbit each other and one occasionally blocks out the light from the other. Lissauer argued that several detections around a single star are not likely to be false positives. So his group calculated that eclipsing binaries would be very unlikely to cause multiple dips in a star's light. While one eclipsing binary getting in the way is possible, two isn't likely. Three or four is nearly impossible. Because astronomers were seeing many more stars that seemed to have multiple planets than expected from random alignments with binaries, Nearly all must be actual solar systems. The researchers at least reasoned. To confirm previous exoplanet candidates as real, a team spent many months with a ground based telescope for each of those candidate planets. The 715 new planets emerged from only the first two years of observations, but Kepler kept observing for an additional two years before the second of its four reaction wheels failed in May 2013 making it now inaccurate for measurements. However, that does mean that Lissauer's team now has another two years of data to sift through. Lissauer says, quote, We are confident that this technique will turn up hundreds of more exoplanets, unquote. Okay, we're done with astronomy. Let's go back to biology for the next story. Usually it takes months or years to find evidence of someone's misconduct in science. This particular story shows that in this modern age of instant communication, you'd better be very careful about what kind of science you're making up in your journal articles. In the very prestigious journal Nature, at the end of January, a major research story was published by Dr. Haruko Obakata of the Riken Institute, which suggested that you could dip adult cells into acid and easily make them into stem cells. This acid method of making a type of stem cell, known as STAP cells, came under fire as soon as it appeared in two papers in Nature at the end of January. Many researchers since January have tried failed to repeat the feat. Other scientists have pointed out that some pictures in the reports appear to have been tampered with or repeated, and some passages of text are identical to parts of other publications. Now, the Ricken Institute, where Obakata was based, has completed an initial examination and found that the lead researcher committed fraud by deliberately altering some of the images. Obakata said in a written statement that she received the ruling with feelings of, quote, indignation and surprise, and that she would appeal. Ricken is attempting to replicate the creation of STAP cells, but Dr. Masatoshi Taikichi, director of the Ricken Center of Developmental Biology, cautioned in a statement that confirmation could take up to a year. All I can say is, Obakata may be sincere and may simply be a victim of her own lousy science. By the way, I suspect, I suspect, in the back of every scientist's mind, constantly lurks this fear of whether they actually did their experiments with due diligence. Did they trust that undergrad a bit too much? Did that grad student misinterpret their directions or use a bit too much bias to consider the data? Did the PI themselves use a bit too much bias or the wrong method for performing or interpreting the experimental data? Was the equipment reliable? Were their statistical methods reliable and correct? We all want to be good scientists and publish good data, and we try our hardest, but it's easy to sink into paranoia Especially when you see someone like Obakata, who seems sincere in her denial. Maybe it really isn't her fault. But then again, who knows? The journal Nature has not said whether Obakata's papers will be retracted or not, as some of the co-authors have requested. The journal is conducting its own investigation. The last story of the night may make some of you uncomfortable because it has to do with body parts that make people blush. Just be aware, if you have young kids listening who are particularly sensitive, you may just want to skip this last story. In the past, I have chatted about genetic abnormalities of sexual development. Oddly enough, some of the intersexual phenomenon that I told you guys about were fairly common. There are, however, a set of genetic developmental problems that occur in XX females that are even more rare and a bit disconcerting. Whenever I take up this topic in my medical genetics class, I think the students become a bit uneasy. At the very least, they don't look very comfortable. I'm talking about diseases that cause a phenomenon called vaginal dysplasia. This is a condition in which a woman with normal female chromosome karyotype 46XX is characterized by complete or partial absence of the vagina. The less rare form, and less severe, is called Meyer-Rokotansky syndrome, and it occurs in about 1 in 5,000 female births. Usually women affected by MR have a short or absent vaginal cavity, but they still have a uterus or ovaries, and they're simply not connected through. They are obviously infertile for that reason. The more severe form of this congenital malformation is called meyer rokitansky kuster hauser syndrome, or MRKH syndrome, or congenital absence of the uterus and vagina. This occurs in about 1 in 20,000 female births, and as the name implies, not only are the MRKH-affected women a bit like Barbie dolls, but they're also lacking in the rest of their reproductive apparatus. The cause for either of these diseases is still not clear as far as I know, Several studies have shown there is no dominant genetic cause for MRKH, although there are chromosomal abnormalities. In the past, when I've spoken of treatment for these women in my classes, I have shrugged and said that the usual treatment is surgery to create a neovagina through the methods used most commonly on male to female transsexuals. Sadly, the outcome for affected women who have this surgery is ironically less effective than it would be for a transsexual, because of the different tissues involved in the operations. I won't go into those details. However, April news from the medical journal The Lancet and Dr. Tony Atala's lab of Wake Forest Hospital may change all that. The title of Atala's story is, quote, Tissue-Engineered Autologous Vaginal Organs in Patients, a Pilot Cohort Study, unquote. Atala has been key in the last few years in growing functioning organs like bladders and urethras in the lab and transplanting them into patients. He has now grown a functioning vagina in his laboratory. In his new study, Atala employed several female patients who had congenital vaginal dysplasia due to MR or MRKH. The patients were ages 13 to 18 years of age. He obtained a biopsy of tissue from each patient, then cultured, expanded, and seeded epithelial and muscle cells onto biodegradable scaffolds. The organs were constructed and allowed to mature in an incubator. Then his group surgically implanted these organs into the affected women. And this is not something Atala just did. He performed these operations eight years ago. Now, after eight years, the work on these women is being reported as the follow-ups are being conducted and the study is being finished. The upshot is is they found no long-term post-operative surgical complications. The tissue looked absolutely normal and grew normally in every case. Atala says, quote, Yearly serial biopsies showed a tri-layered structure consisting of an epithelial cell-lined lumen surrounded by matrix and muscle with expected components of vaginal tissue present. Immunohistochemical analysis confirmed the presence of phenotypically normal smooth muscle and epithelium. Unquote. Further, the women are apparently quite happy after eight years with their new organs. Atala adds quote, A validated self administered female sexual function index questionnaire showed variables in the normal range in all areas tested, such as desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, satisfaction, and painless intercourse. Now, here's the real kicker. The MR-affected women who had their ovaries and uterus present have actually undergone menses since these operations. And Atala says he is certain that they can undergo normal pregnancy with proper precautions. This is amazing. I mean, it's another breakthrough in tissue engineering and bodes well for our future of replacing human parts that are never there in the first place or get damaged during our lifetimes. As Atala concludes, quote, "We are very happy with the vaginal organs that we have engineered from the patient's own cells and implanted. They have shown normal structure and function even with a follow-up of up to 8 years. This is all very promising and who knows what we shall be able to engineer in the next few years." Unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember to reduce that animal protein intake. Don't give up on compact discs quite yet. And I hope I have inspired some of you.
4: Hold up. What was that?
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
3: There you go. Jim, what can I say? Just... Month in, month out. Thank you so much. Everyone loves it. Thank you so much. So do you work in Penzance, Wick, San Francisco, Johannesburg? Then Octagon Technology Hosted Exchange is for you. Yes, Octagon Technology is now able to supply hosted exchange services for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the criminal justice secure email That just took ages to get for Clive and Diane, and I'm so pleased they kind of managed to kind of secure it as well. Excellent. Thank you for the support for SofaCon, along with everybody else who kind of of chipped in and supported that, and for helping out with the show as well. Clive and Diane, big stars. Thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and like I say, it is Our Lands Abounds by David MacDonald. I'll give you a heads up about David. David MacDonald is a mild-mannered reporter, and editor by day, and a wild-eyed writer by night. Based in Melbourne, Australia, he is the editor of the fortnightly magazine for international welfare organisations and divides his spare time between helping run a local cricket club and writing. In 2013, he won the Ditmar Award for Best New Talent. And in 2014, he won the William J. Athling Jr. Award for Criticism or Review and was shortlisted for the WSFA Small Press Award. His short fiction has appeared in anthologies from publishers such as Moonstone Books. Slightly Push Publishing, I think that's why i have getting that wrong there, and Crazy Eight Press and Fablecroft Publishing. In 2015, his first, first movie novelisation, Backcountry, was released by Harper Collins. David is a member of the Horror Writers Association, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers, and the Melbourne-based writers group Supernova. This story, Our Lands, first appeared in his mini-collection, Cold Comfort and Other Tales, pu- published by Clandestine Press in late 2014. You can find more, and there's a link on to David's site as well. This story is narrated by Veronica Gagé. Oh, Veronica's... Oh man, Veronica, I forget what it was called. You know what I mean? Return to Earth, I think it was. Veronica did this narration ages back on Starship Sover and it just blew me away. And it was one of my kind of favourite stories. It was possibly 2013. It was kind of I think it came from the stable of stupefying stories. You know, Bruce Besky's, you know, who the guy who kind of coined the, coined the term cyberpunk there. Came from his, and Veronica just did a fantastic narration as well. So I'll put a link on it. Like you say, I've I've read Veronica's blog so many times' bio, but I want you to go over there because Veronica's just an outstanding narrator. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
0: Our Land Abounds by David MacDonald. By the time Kessler was fully awake, groomed, and in his uniform, the rest of his family was already up and eating breakfast. He walked into the kitchen, stopping to kiss his wife on the cheek and getting a smile in return. Moving to the counter, he reached out and ruffled his son's hair as he walked past. Ready for your presentation, Michael? Yes, Dad. Okay, run it past me. Michael carefully lifted a cloth-covered bundle from beside his chair, handling it with the reference adults would save for a precious antique. He placed it gently on the tabletop and raised the cloth, revealing a clear perspex cylinder, around a foot and a half tall with holes piercing the base. Inch-thick discs were spaced evenly up its height, and Kessler could see they housed slowly spinning fans. So, um... The sun heats up the air inside the tower, and it rises, spinning these turbines. Michael said, gesturing to the fans. They generate electricity, which comes to us. Do you want to hear about how long they took to build? No, that's okay, but you practice on the bus, all right? Michael nodded. Kessler smiled proudly. The model had taken them a week to build, but he had been happy spending time with his son, and he had no doubt the kid would get an A. Kessler remembered his own astonishment when he'd been sent to inspect the security around the power generators in the middle of the outback. On his way back to the city, he had spent at least an hour atop a hill gazing back over the power plant. Almost a kilometer tall, they rose from the red desert sands like trees of glittering steel and glass, spreading out as far as the eye could see. Kessler ran his hands over the control grid embedded in the kitchen counter. The far wall came to life, photoelectric paint lit up, and images flickered across the screen. As usual, he'd left it on the news channel. A couple of talking heads discussed whether the Japanese would try and retaliate for the sinking of two whaling vessels that had strayed into the wrong waters. He tapped a button and muted the sound. The headline banner that scrolled beneath was the usual mix of doom and gloom from around the world— from food riots in Munich to reports that Blue State forces had used nerve gas against Red State troops in the new Civil War. The background changed to footage of PLA tanks rolling through the streets of Stalingrad, and Kessler was silently thanking whatever might be up there that China had never managed to develop a decent navy when he heard a soft cough behind him. Casey knew better than to move up behind him too quietly. Part of him had never forgotten what it was like to be a soldier. Can you change the channel, please, honey? Michael doesn't need to see that. Her voice contained a slight note of disapproval. I don't know why you watch it anyway. It's depressing. i just like to remind myself that we really do live in the lucky country. Michael broke in excitedly. That's what Miss said. She said we are the lucky country, and we really should be sharing what we have with people in other countries who have nothing. "'Kessler and Casey traded frowns. "'Michael, it's not quite that simple,' Kessler said. "'If you had to share that bowl of cereal with me and Mom and the bakers next door, "'there wouldn't be much left for you now, would there?' "'No, I guess not. "'Well, it's a bit like that. "'We only have so much food to go around. "'We can't feed everyone without missing out ourselves.' "'Oh, okay.' Seemingly convinced, Michael happily went back to eating his cereal. Kessler leaned over and hissed into his wife's ear. Did you know she was filling the kids' heads with that rubbish? Of course not. I didn't know people still thought like that. Kessler frowned. He loved her, but Casey could be so naive. A few people still do, he said. Well... "'I'm afraid you are the one who is going to have to deal with the tears "'when he realizes they are getting a new teacher.' "'Casey blinked. "'What—what do you mean? "'Surely you aren't going to report her?' "'I don't have any choice, you know that. "'Sooner or later, someone will, "'and then the security directorate will start wondering "'how we couldn't have known, and if we did, "'why a border guardsman didn't report it. "'I don't have any desire to end up breaking rocks "'on the irrigation project.' They wouldn't. You're a war hero. Kessler sighed. His wife's trusting nature was both charming and frustrating. There are some things even the brass sunburst can't protect you from. He leaned over and kissed her on the cheek. Now I have to get going. I want you to call the directorate as soon as you've dropped Michael off, okay? She nodded her head and he gave her a smile, kissing her forehead before walking out the door. Glebe was waiting for him in the car, sweating despite the air conditioning. He was a big man, florid jowls spilling over his khaki collar. Kessler's military background had made him distrustful of fat men, wondering about their self-control, but Glebe was a hard man to hate. Instead, Kessler felt the familiar feeling of affectionate contempt wash over him. The younger man had no combat experience. His father, Senator Glebe— had pulled strings to get him into the guard. A different man might have resented Kessler's competence and the lingering touch of glory, but Philippe was surprisingly aware of his limitations and had gladly attached himself to Kessler, happy to bask in his reflected glory such as it was. Plus, he had a streak of mongrel in him that belied his soft exterior, something Kessler thoroughly approved of. Kessler eased into the seat, wincing as the scar tissue along his side pulled tight. Glebe pretended not to notice and passed him a silver flask. Kessler unscrewed the cap, took a sip, and began to cough and splutter. "'Jesus! Glebe, what the hell is that?' he asked, handing back the flask. "'Tasmanian apple brandy. Compliments of my father. Straight from Hobart to you.' Kessler shook his head. Oh, Christ, no wonder they insisted on building the new capital there. Well, that and Canberra is a little too close to what's left of Sydney. Kessler granted an agreement. It was amazing how much damage a Jema' Islamia suicide bomber could do with a suitcase nuke wrapped in cobalt cladding. I'd make a joke of how I thought cockroaches and politicians could survive a bit of fallout, but in honor of the brandy, I'll refrain." The drive to base followed the usual pattern, Glebe sharing all the latest gossip from the halls of power, Kessler pretending to listen while he ran through the day's tasks in his head. He was wrestling with the logistics of next week's audit when he realized Glebe had gone quiet, an unusual state of affairs. Kessler turned to find him looking out of the window, and he followed his subordinate's gaze. Their route had taken them through at the city square. Where a bandstand had once been stood a raised dais covered in a transparent dome. Inside were metal gallows, and dangling by thick hempen rope were three bodies, with signs hanging around their neck. The signs were not hand-lettered, but a crisp white with dark official script. The first body belonged to a thin man with a shock of blonde hair and dark glasses, the word agitator branding him in death in the center hung a middle-aged man in a navy blue quasi-military uniform and a sign saying, "'Harborer.'" The final figure was a young woman with brown skin and raven-black hair, her sign differentiated from the others by the extravagance of bearing two words, "'Illegal Immigrant.'" "'Glebe!' The younger man didn't look round. "'Glebe, focus on the road!' Glebe swore and jerked the wheel, nearly veering off the road. He managed to wrestle the car under control, hunching over the wheel, eyes fixed directly ahead. I'm sorry, sir, that that was stupid of me, he said. Letting those bodies get to me, you must have seen hundreds, thousands before. It's okay, Glebe, you never get used to it, Kessler said. Gleave's eyes flicked to the brass sunbursts, wreathed in stylized poppies pinned to the older man's collar. But you've seen combat, sir. You were at Cairns. Kessler winced at the note of reverence in the other man's voice, the way he emphasized the city's name. For a moment, he was back there, kneeling amongst the sparse shrubbery lining the beach, watching the boats disgorging the hordes of enemy soldiers, sweating, ready to piss himself. It's not something you get used to. I wish I hadn't been there, and I wish I didn't have to see things like that in the middle of my fucking hometown. Glebe looked a little scandalized. You were heroes, Major. You saved us all. Maybe. Maybe we were simply lucky, he said. You're a soldier, Gleb. You know we wouldn't have been able to hold off the Second Fleet, no matter what the textbooks say, don't you? Gleb nodded. Yeah, but you bought us enough time to negotiate the defection of the U.S. forces and their bases. And their nukes. Don't forget the nukes they weren't meant to have on our soil, Kessler said. Lucky for us they did, wouldn't you say, sir? Not so lucky for Jakarta. Said the opportunistic bastards right, as far as I am concerned, sir. They thought we'd be easy pickings, but we showed them. Kessler clapped Glebe on the shoulder. That we did. And all it cost was citizenship and shelter for some Yanks and their families. Now, why don't you concentrate on the road? We're almost there. The road passed under a massive stone arch. At the top sat an enormous coat of arms, underlined with the words... REPUBLIC OF AUSTRALASIA, BORDER GUARD The winding driveway of coarse bluestone gravel crunched under the tires as they drove up to the imposing building. Despite its three stories, it had a squat look about it, with brutal lines and a forbidding air. Government architects were not big on frills, preferring function over form. They pulled up at the doors and hopped out of the car, a corporal hurrying over to take the keys almost before Glebe's feet hit the ground. Have it back here in an hour, Kessler said. Can you handle that? Yes, sir. Of course, sir. Kessler frowned. The soldier's accent was faint but unmistakably kiwi. The Kiwis might be proud citizens of the Republic, and unlike most of Oceania, they'd voted to join, and Kessler certainly was thankful for the food they provided. But old prejudices died hard, and it was hard to see them as real Australians even after all this time. Old jokes about them being another state be damned. A harried young lieutenant skidded to a halt in front of Kessler, snapping off a hasty salute. Major, we have a prisoner ready for interrogation, he said. Kessler raised an eyebrow at Glebe. You don't think I have better things to do than interview illegals, he snapped. I'm sorry, sir, but we're a bit swamped. A barge grounded itself on the rocks at Sharky's Point at 3 a.m., and we have 47 passengers to debrief. Kessler paused, considering options he didn't have. All right, Lieutenant, we will get on it. Kessler didn't waste any more words, but marched on into the building. Well, sir, it's been a while since we had that sort of number coming through. Glebe was right. Kessler could remember the days of processing thousands a day, but that had been before the Navy had been given orders to sink on sight. Some swabby is going to get his arse kicked, no doubt about it, Kessler said. But... Let's make sure we cover our own arses and focus on getting this prisoner processed and shipped off as soon as possible. Go and find out what holding room they are in. The harsh white decor of the room gave the prisoner's skin a sickly cast, and the scraggly dark beard and sunken eyes only added the impression of ill health. He was seated at a cheap wooden table, hands manacled to the surface with steel shackles. Kessler gestured to one of the guards who stood on either side of the restrained man. Get those cuffs off and leave us. The corporal didn't look happy, but he wasn't going to argue with a major, especially not one with a veteran's insignia on his collar. With a sullen look on his face, he unlocked the cuffs, the prisoner wincing as the soldier yanked them off with no attempt at gentleness. He and the other guard marched out with a backwards look, and the door clicked loudly shut behind them. Kessler walked back to the table and sat down. The prisoner faced his stare without flinching. Kessler was surprised. Most people he interrogated were already broken by their experiences and lacked the nerve to make eye contact. Kessler held the man's gaze without blinking, even when his peripheral vision picked up Glebe moving to lean against the wall. He felt a faint wash of approval It seemed Glebe had been listening when Kessler had taken the time to pass on a few tricks to keep a captive off balance. Finally, the prisoner looked down at the table, taking a breath before he spoke. "'Thank you, Major, for that unexpected kindness. I was starting to worry for my hands.' The man's English was perfect and sounded as if he was well-educated. "'We aren't barbarians here.' "'You will be treated with courtesy while you are in our custody,' Kessler said. "'And then?' the man asked. "'It depends on how cooperative you are and what skills you have. "'Do the right thing by us and we will do the right thing by you,' Kessler said. "'If you have a trade, you could end up in a secure factory, earning your keep. "'If not, well, the irrigation projects or the farms can always use more strong backs.' Of course, if you don't cooperate, or if we decide you're completely useless, there are other options, Glebe broke in from across the room. Like what? the prisoner asked. We send you to the processing camps on one of the islands and let them decide what to do with you, Glebe said. You mean the death camps? The prisoner's face paled even further. Kessler shot Glebe a dirty look. "'Subtlety was a virtue when it came to interrogations, "'scaring them enough to talk but not enough to freeze, "'and Glebe had all the subtlety of a sledgehammer. "'Just rumors, nothing more,' Kessler said. "'But they certainly aren't a holiday resort either. "'I wouldn't want to go there if I were you.' "'But what do you want to know?' "'There was a bead of sweat trickling from the man's temple.' "'I tried giving them my name, but they didn't seem to care. It's—' Kessler cut him off. "'I don't want to know your fucking name, mate. I don't plan on knowing you long enough to need it.' Leap chuckled. (laughs) "'Yeah, we don't want to get attached before we ship you off.' Kessler leaned forward and stared at the prisoner. "'So, this is how it's going to work. "'I am going to ask questions.' You are going to answer them. Then I am going to knock off and have a beer after recommending you aren't given too hard a time. Understand? The prisoner nodded. Good. I like things uncomplicated, Kessler said. So, let's start with something simple. Where did your boat leave from? Sri Lanka. The man looked down at his hands. Well... What used to be Sri Lanka? Kessler whistled softly. Well, you'd had a long and dangerous journey before you even got on the boat. It's amazing what you can do when you are really desperate. Every winter it was harder and harder to find food for my family. I've heard there are food shortages. Kessler found it ironic that after all the years of worrying about the oil running out, it was now food and fresh water nations craved. Over-cultivation and fertilization, salinity and climate change had rendered vast swaths of arable land no more than deserts, and as the stockpiles had dwindled, governments had found starving people had little loyalty. The prisoner eyed Glebe's wide girth distastefully. You people have no idea how short food is getting outside of your fortunate land. Lieb flushed and took a step forward. Why you... he subsided at a curt gesture from Kessler. Surely there were other places to go without having to cross half the globe, Kessler said. The prisoner laughed. Other places? What other places? "'Europe is falling to pieces. "'The Middle East is a smoking ruin. "'They should have known Israel would choose the nuclear option "'rather than be conquered. "'Eastern Europe is a war zone, just like Asia. "'Only a madman would want to go to America.' "'He shuddered. "'And Africa? "'No one has heard anything out of there for almost a decade.' "'You seem remarkably well-informed,' Kessler said. "'What exactly did you do before you left?' I was a university lecturer. He smiled, somewhat ruefully. Of course, that doesn't bring in much food, so I did whatever jobs I could find. Glebe sneered. Not much use for professors here. That depends on your area of study. What field? Engineering? Medicine? Physics? Kessler asked. Life here will be much easier if you have a skill set we can use. The prisoner looked down at the table again. Literature, he said softly. Kessler tried to keep a straight face, but he could hear Glebe chuckling. Probably not much use to us, the Major said dryly. I hope for your sake those odd jobs made you good with your hands. Now... ''Next question. Who set up the boat? The travel? Who did you pay?'' ''I don't know. We never got a name.'' With the speed frightening in such a big man, Glebe was at the table in a heartbeat, bringing his hands down on the surface with a crash. The prisoner jerked back, almost overbalancing, teetering on the chair before finding his balance. ''Don't lie to us. Give us names.'' Glebe's face was bright red and spittle sprayed in the prisoner's face. Don't fuck around with us. I don't know names, I swear. Kessler could see the fear in the man's eyes and knew that he was either too scared to speak or really didn't know anything. It's all right, Glebe, I believe him, Kessler said. Muttering, Glebe returned to leaning against the wall, and Kessler continued. You've been very cooperative so far, but if you remember anything about the people who smuggled you in, I'd suggest you tell us. It may make things go a lot easier for you and your family. The prisoner nodded. Please, I've tried very hard to cooperate. Can I please see my wife and daughter now? Kessler shook his head regretfully. "'I'm sorry, that won't be possible. "'They will be processed separately. "'If you fall in the same categories, you will see them then.' "'What? You can't be serious.' "'The prisoner's voice cracked. "'You have to let me see them. Please.' "'We don't have to do anything. "'You forfeited all your rights when you boarded that boat,' Kessler said. "'I'm sorry.' There are processes I need to follow. My hands are tied. The prisoner stared at Kessler's hand and the thick gold band he wore around his finger. Do you have any children? That's none of your goddamn business. I'll take that as a yes, otherwise you wouldn't react like that. Put yourself in my shoes for a moment. "'What if it was your wife and child we were talking about? "'I am asking you as one father to another. "'Please let me see them.' "'I do what I do because I am a father. "'I'm protecting my son's future. "'What would you have us do? "'Let everyone in who comes knocking? "'Soon we'd be no better off than the rest of the world,' Kessler said. "'Some people seem to think we should all starve together out of principle.' Well, fuck them. We take care of our own. That's right. Australasia for Australasians, Gleeb said. So, just because you were fortunate enough to be born on an island with a lot of natural resources, you deserve to live and the rest of the world can die? Fortunate? Kessler asked. We fought to stay free and we've worked hard to make this country self-sufficient. "'This is our island. "'We don't need the world. "'They can keep their madness.' "'The prisoner closed his eyes "'and began to recite. "'No man is an island, "'entire of itself. "'Each is a piece of the continent, "'a part of the main.' "'Glebe laughed. "'What the hell was that?' "'Nothing.' Just something a countryman of mine wrote a long time ago. Well, your country can keep its poof to poetry, and it can keep its problems, Leib said. Kessler stood and closed his notebook. I think we are done here. The door clicked shut behind them, cutting off the prisoner's pleas for his family. As he walked off, Kessler felt a vibration in his pocket and pulled out his phone, its screen flashing with a new message notification. Hi, honey. Security took away teacher at lunch. Feel pretty sucky, but had to do it for Michael's sake, right? Love you. For Michael's sake. For a moment, Kessler thought about the man sitting in the interrogation room and what he had tried to do for his family. An image of Michael in threadbare clothes that hung on a thin body flashed before his eyes. What would Kessler do in the illegal's place? Sir? Huh? Kessler realized Glebe had been talking to him. He hadn't heard a word. I said, I will go put the file under camps. Glebe's voice was calculatedly toneless, but Kessler could tell he was annoyed at having to repeat himself. Kessler hesitated for a moment, then reached out and took the file. It's okay, Glebe. I'll handle it. Glebe opened his mouth to argue, but Kessler cut him off. I said, I will handle it. Now go get the next illegal prepped and ready. Kessler saw the fat man's eyes narrow for an instant and wondered if Glebe was thinking of making a phone call of his own. There were other ways to advance in the ranks aside from seeing combat. For the first time in a long time, Kessler found he just didn't
4: care
3: there you go don't forget copyright is David David thank you so much for that really pleased like I say I'll put a link on go and have check out our Lands Bounds, his, his collection Cold Comfort and other tales big thank you David and Veronica big hugs big big hugs thank you so much for that just fantastic thank you so that is Starship Sovas, 384. Big thank you to Jeremy, kind of putting it all together there now. You know what I mean? He's a good lad, Jeremy. Good lad. You know what I mean? I kind of keep on just dropping little emails. You know what I mean? Just to like, get Jeremy, see if you can get him. You know what I mean? See if you can get her. And Nikita, massive writers. You know what I mean? You want to believe who he's trying to get at the moment. He's tackling probably the biggest genre fiction writer at the moment. <laughs> Jeremy's trying, you know what I mean? Just keep chipping away there. Go on, Jeremy. So that is today's show. Like I say, I hope you enjoyed it. Do pop over and check out my YouTube channel. Listen, I haven't put a shout-out for a while. Support the show. Yeah, we need you. We need your hard cash, man. Yes, it doesn't get any plain and simple than that. If you want this to keep going, this little baby... And the starship is over here, Stu. put some shekels in my pocket to kind of make this, make it survive. Thank you so much. It will be a pleasure to keep on doing it. Until next time, I would just like to say good night from me.
1: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? In next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Software
2: Evacuation Procedure Machine. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in C two one. This presentation has Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.